welcome to the Gig Work Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Wage Indicator Foundation, where we highlight developments, best practices, events, research, and more on global issues on a gig economy. My name is Martijn Aretz, and I am your host today. The imbalance between the position of the worker and the platform is strongest on platforms where the allocation of ultra-short gigs is done via the algorithm. This is something I see especially in platforms in the domains of online clickwork, like training algorithms, and in platforms for on-demand services like taxi and delivery. Although an algorithm is often presented as a magical black box, it is not something that's emerged by itself. It is the result of choices made by people, the platform operators. These choices are a combination of safeguarding the interest of demands, the interest of supply, and the interest of the platform organization. The magical fog that hangs over algorithms is often often exploited to hide the choices made by the organization and keep the position of the individual worker as being small. Maintaining information asymmetry is a common strategy in the world of tech, which is particularly harmful given that a platform, like a private regulator, can easily change the rules of the game for everyone at once. Simply put, adjusting or experimenting with one single variable directly impacts many thousands and, in some cases, millions of workers. Discussions about these automatic decision-making processes are often difficult because not all stakeholders have access to all the data. Calculations by the platform are thus simply not verifiable or replicable. A fact that has been accepted by many stakeholders for way too long. What if you can break through this fog by creating a more living playing field, by giving the worker access to the data too? This is what former tech professional and Uber driver James Ferrer is doing with the App Drivers and Couriers Union and the Worker Info Exchange. By successfully using the data from taxi and delivery platforms against them, the UK court ruled that taxi drivers in London are not freelancers but workers, an intermediate category where the working person is entitled to some security like minimum wage. And it helps workers who have been unfairly fired by the platform without any relevant human intervention. One of the lawsuits also resulted in Uber having to repay more than 600 million pounds in unpaid VAT in the UK. For the Gig Work podcast from the Wage Indicator Foundation, I took the train to London to talk to James. We talked about his fights for less inequality in the app drivers and courier sector, the strategy of platforms like Uber over the last 10 years in the UK, and the reactions of different stakeholders in the debates. It turned out to be a long episode, but I felt it was important that this whole story will be heard. So James, when I Google your name, you're quite present on the internet on different related topics, especially on worker rights and especially with a focus on the, on app-based work, with a focus on delivery and, and taxi. So how comes? Well, I was a private hire driver for two years between 2015 and 2016 and I saw firsthand how abusive these platforms were and how manipulative they were 
and how they flouted the law in terms of underpayment of workers and how quickly that deteriorated, particularly in those two years. And so I became naturally involved in in advocating for my rights and collective rights with many other workers at the time. And of course, you know, even before it's formally recognised, that's the definition of a trade union. That's what a trade union is, a union of workers organising in their workplace. And I found myself doing that in 2015, 2016. In terms of worker info exchange, the two things were determinative for me about the struggle for data. One, one is I come from a tech background myself. I worked for SAP, uh, enterprise software uh, company in Germany for many years. So I, I had an inkling about the role technology was playing, particularly the newly emerging mobile platforms that came after the invention of the iPhone in 2008. Yeah, and now going also back to the time that you were driving for or via Uber, just depends on who you're asking, of course, always. And the legal people always know how to formulate. No, I'm clear. I was driving. (laughs) And the Supreme Court in the United Kingdom agrees with me. (laughs) Yeah, but but what was it that you saw changing within those three years while driving for Uber? Well, there was two pay cuts in that period, or fair cuts, let's call them, in that period of time. And there was also a huge growth in supply as uber would describe it or of labor on that platform at the time so two things you have you have you have an excess supply of labor and you fall in prices so less work less less pay for the work you do get it was a dramatic change over those two years when uber arrived in britain around 2012 it was first you know the black car service it was a executive chauffeuring market that they were in then they launched Uber X and went after the bulk market and quickly collapsed that market. But at the beginning, you know, Uber was paying very good rates to drivers. They were paying incredible referral bonuses. I remember Uber featuring a couple working for for Uber that that year had made something like 30, 40,000 pounds in referrals alone, just referring other drivers. And so Uber was featuring this, look, at, look, at, look, you can make more money referring new drivers to this platform than you can actually driving. And of course, then that, that, that ends to in tragedy. I remember talking to some of the Uber staff at what they now call the Green Light Hub. And they were saying, well, you know, if your wheels ain't turning, you ain't earning. So the idea was that, look, if we put, we put more, we put more, we put more drivers on the platform, so now there's less work to go around. So now if we drop the price, increase demand, you'll make more mo- money. But of course, it, it's, it's madness. It's like, because you know, there's only so much work you can do. And if you keep dropping yield, dropping yield, dropping yield, you know, you're just running yourself ragged. And in the end, you, can't, you just can't, you can't make money. But that was the kind of insidious lie being sold by... Uber managers to Uber drivers at the time, like, look, you know, we dropped the price, you're going to make more money. And that's what we saw in 2015, 2016. By the end of my time there, the gearbox failed in my vehicle and I couldn't justify financing another vehicle. I was barely making minimum wage as it was. I wasn't even making minimum wage. In fact, I know I wasn't because I recently got compensated from by Uber for the lost earnings I had over those two years. But so I know I was earning less than minimum wage. But, you know, at that time, there was drivers sleeping in their vehicles, you know, there's drivers financing vehicles, then go on the platform, can't make money. So now they're working longer and longer hours. This is something that came up in the in the in the legal case we eventually took. 
was an observation that, you know, while Uber would say you're, you're your own boss and you're running your own business, you know, the court recognized that the only lever you had was to just work more hours. You weren't in control of anything. You were in control, you weren't in control of the price. You were in control of the customer. You know, the five Ps of marketing, product, price, placement, promotion. You're in charge of any of those things. The only thing you could do is drive more hours. That's all you could do. And that's how people coped. You know, if you had a target to bring home 500 pounds a week, if it took you 40 hours to do it last year, it's going to take you 60 this year and it'll take you 80, 90 next, next year. So it's also a, a traditional case of, of externalizing the, 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 the risk of no work to, to the worker. Well, the worker has no control on the different variables. Yeah, and it's a, it's a kind of a boiling frog syndrome too. You know, once you once you finance the vehicle, so a lot of people are trapped in debt too. You know, you're 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 trapped in a finance agreement for some vehicle, and try to make it work. And it takes a while for people to realize and accept the dire financial position they're now in. And for many people, you know, the natural human response is to put the head down and just work longer and longer and longer hours. Yeah. And now also going back to, to, to what you just described as your first court case where you saw what data they had on you. So so what's from you driving for Uber to this first court case? So, so what what happened? So, so why did you brought them to court? Well, from where we're speaking today, literally across the street, I was assaulted one night in a vehicle. And I was worried that Uber never going to believe the driver. So I called the police immediately so that we could make a police report so that, you know, I, I'm given, you know, you can't lie to a police officer. So I've been given an account to the police of what, what happened. And then I reported it to Uber. What the police wanted me to do was to identify the passenger. And I said, well, I, I can't because... I don't know who it is who were, who were telling me. They, were like, they couldn't quite believe me that, that I wouldn't know or could not know who my passenger was. And so I got in touch with Uber. I asked Uber to tell me who the passenger was so I could tell the police. And they were like, no, 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 the police have to contact us. And here's the, here's the way to do it. And then for about 12 weeks, I was in touch with the police. And the police were coming backwards and forwards with me, like Uber's not responding and Uber's refusing. And so for 12 weeks, Uber actually refused to cooperate with the police to identify the passenger. And then I, I was curious about, well, what relationship I am, am I in with this platform? And where is their duty of care to me as a worker? So I approached a lawyer to ask that question. And they said, look, you know, there really isn't much of a duty care because they haven't recognized you as an employee. However, you may be a worker, which is in Britain is in kind of an intermediate step between self-employment and full employment. It's the bottom rung of employment rights, where that you're still technically self-employed, but you're not in business on your own account. And therefore, because of that vulnerable position you're in, you're entitled to minimum wage and holiday pay and so we decided to raise that challenge against uber at that time and that became the case that went on to the supreme court eventually but also you know when we took an action against uber in, in tribunal the employment tribunal uber showed up with a ton of my own data and many sheets of paper providing different infographics and analysis of data analysis of the work that I had done and I hadn't done, accepted, and how much I was paid, and many hours I worked, and I had access to absolutely none of that. But I also found that Uber were, was misrepresenting 
that data and how it was interpreted. And I kind of made up my mind at that moment that I'm not going to allow that to happen again or to other workers because it's a power, powerful platform that has a monopolistic hold on personal data and was was using that to present a picture of the world that wasn't quite accurate. And we, as workers and me, as an individual worker, had almost no access at all to the same data. And of course, in a struggle, when you think about it, capital versus labor, you know, we've got the labor, they've got the capital. But data is another thing. There is no agreement that these platforms can retain and pool data like it's capital. It's not capital. It's our personal data. And we have every much as much right to have access and control of that data, particularly under terms of the GDPR in Europe. And so that, that struggle was born then. So I think for app workers today, you know, organizing around data and algorithmic transparency is a, is a key principle in the organizing fight of labor in the app-based economy. And it was also the start moment also of the, of the, of the worker info exchange? Or for how, how did it start? Well, I started making subject access requests from 2016 on, and I didn't really know what I was doing as pre-GDPR. It was under the old Data Protection Act here in Britain, which is not, not, you know, not terribly dissimilar from, from GDPR, but it did, did have access rights, and I was exercising them. But I, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I knew that I was getting back a lot of nonsense from Uber, a lot of obfuscation, But but it was that, you know, we were in tribunal in 2016. We filed a complaint in 2015. We're in tribunal 2016. And the moment for me was Uber were trying to make this argument against me that I had a high cancellation rate. So I had about, yeah, 50% cancellation rate. I, I did have a high cancellation rate. And they were sort of saying, their argument was, well, look, you know, this guy is cancelling about half the work we sent to him. But he wants to be paid minimum wage. Why should we pay minimum wage? He could be at home sitting on the sofa. He could be in bed cancelling jobs after job after job. And we'd have to pay him minimum wage to do so. And they also ran that argument with my data minus my name to their submission to the Future World of Work inquiry, parliamentary select committee inquiry here at the, in the UK parliament. And I was pretty appalled by it because what they were doing is they were conflating my acceptance rate with my productivity rate, which is two different things. Because there was an index week that turned the whole case turned on. And it was a week in July 2015 when I actually worked 91 hours on the platform, logged in, available for work 91 hours. And Uber said that I had... You know, over that period, I'd reject about half the work sent to me, which was true. But my completion rate per hour was at 1.59 jobs per hour for those 91 hours, on average, across those 91 hours. But then there was a separate onboarding document that Uber had published to workers the year before, which suggested that if, you know, you should be working around 40 to 60 hours a week, you should be completing 1.4 to 1.6 jobs per hour. So I was at the higher end of productivity at 91 hours that Uber themselves were saying they expected in 40 to 60 hours. But they were telling me I still didn't deserve minimum wage as they were conflating productivity with acceptance rate, which is really two very different things. 
And so I, I won that argument, but, but just by fluke, because they were using my data against me and I, I didn't have my productivity data. I didn't have that. I, I, for luck, had this onboarding document that we, we used in the bundle, but it just showed me the power of the lie that can be told with data. And they who hold the data are, you know, we have a bias in society towards holders of data oh this is you know we're, we we th- like to think we're evidence-based we're fact-based and you know if uber has access to all of this data then this, this must be the truth and of course it wasn't it wasn't the truth so it's very important that workers have access to their data because we cannot rely on the employer to tell the truth about earnings productivity how people what their true working conditions are yeah, it's always okay. In the end, there's a asymmetry between the information we have as a, in this case, Uber versus the worker. And at the moment that everybody has the same data, because in the end, if you have data you, and you're the only one, you can always take your own conclusions and make your own analysis that supports your your uh, your story. But at the moment that, that everybody has the same information position, you have a much better and fairer discussion on that. Yeah, and it's it's for me. I think it's it's an important catalyst in the organizing the task of labor organizing, because what else are we going to organize around? We're distributed workforce. We hardly see each other. Maybe we see each other in car parks at the airport or something like this. What are we going to talk about? You know, the the, the data is our factory gate. It is our dockside of a hundred years ago. It is our factory gate of fifty years ago. It, our factory gate is is data, because that's what. That's the common experience of our work, and we have to access that data in order to be able to organize fluently. And it isn't just me that believe that, because when we formed ADCU in 2020, we were recognized by the certification officers, the regulator, and and it it is the government entity that lists trade unions, recognizes trade unions. And the chicken and egg problem you have in forming and being recognized as a trade union in Britain is that you have to act as a union before you can be recognized as one. You can't come to them with a blueprint and say, look, if you, if you give me this badge, I'll, I'll operate a union. No, you have to be active as a union of workers before you can be recognized as one, which in a classic sort of organizational development business sense, you know, seems crazy. But from from the point of view of traditional labor organizing, of course, that makes sense. Of course, of course, it does when you think about it. But, you know, what the legislation requires is that the goal of a trade union is it's made of workers and that its objective is to regulate the relations between the employer and the worker. And so in order to demonstrate that you're doing that, you have to demonstrate that you're regulating the relationships between the workers, these app-based workers, and their employer, which is a platform. Now, how do you do that when a company like Uber, where the vast majority of people are spending their time working, simply wouldn't recognize, wouldn't answer an email, wouldn't do anything with us? Well, we couldn't. We couldn't, and we couldn't demonstrate the collective action. So we'd say, well, look, we're doing this individual casework. And we're like, yeah, but that's individual. What's the collective regulation of relations between the employer and the, and the platform? And in the end, what we said was, well, actually, what we are doing to organize ourselves collectively is we're requesting our data and we're aggregating our data so that we can understand the 
working conditions of the workplace that we work in, and this is our collective action. And the and that was what was caused the regulator to accept that we were in fact acting as a trade union in in this collective activity of data acquisition and analysis. And on that basis, we were certified as a trade union. And the other interesting thing was is that our case before the Supreme Court was pending. And with our certification, we were warned that if we lost that case, we would lose our certification as a trade union because the courts wouldn't recognize us as workers. And therefore, the trade union, you know, at that point, we'd be what? Self-employed entrepreneurs and not, not entitled to organize in a trade union. And so if you look at the objectives of ADC as a trade union in our rule book, which is effectively our constitution's legal requirement of every trade union, one of our objectives is that the workers gain control over their data at work as a fundamental principle of organizing VAT-based workers. We've recognized from the start, both in Worker Info Exchange and, and ADCU, we recognize that the key organizing principle for VAT-based workers is access to data and algorithmic transparency. And why didn't other existing trade unions didn't, didn't, didn't care about this? Well, I wouldn't say they didn't care about it. It is a question why the trade union movement have been, in general, slower on this. I think it's inevitable that the trade union movement will need to move on this, move faster on it, because, you know, I think a lot of us would recognize, I'm sure you would agree, that what's significant about app-based workers in the gig economy is that you're at the thin edge of the wedge. And what's happening here is happening workforces deeper into the labor market already and and increasingly at pace so you see the rise of contingent labor in the corporate workforce which is essentially what is it it's the gig economy for for white collar workers you see the rise of the digital workplace and so-called flexible working and so on and You know, the flip side of flexible working and the digital workplace is trying to drive in this idea of precarity into the broader workforce. But that precarity is both delivered and enabled by digital means. So therefore, this whole issue of control by data, algorithmic control, is going to be a big issue for many workforces across the piece. But unfortunately... The, mo the most oppressive use of these technologies has been for more precarious workers, lower income, migrant workers, people of color, more vulnerable workers have been the first ones to feel this heat. So why haven't trade unions moved on it? Well, I think there's a couple of answers to this. One is, is that the trade union movement haven't been good in general at servicing service workers. They haven't been very good at, in general at looking after migrant workers. In this country, the trade union movement, I'm afraid, has become rather, let's say, you know, st stale and pale and hasn't, hasn't made a lot of good inroads into the, into the areas of the economy that, that we have. We've grown very quickly. But I, you know, I, I trust that, that that is changing, will change now. And look, if we can be part of that change, that's great. That's yeah. great. But it, it does need to happen, will happen. It's inevitable it's going to happen yeah. because... 
because trade unions have to move with the issues that the workers face and if they if they haven't faced them i mean i think the other thing that might be maybe a stumbling block in all of this is that a lot of the big trade union movement run on collective agreements many of them historic and i fear that some of those collective agreements, when they come up for negotiation, focus on the immediacy of terms and conditions, pay of on the job right now, and maybe put the digital question on the on the uh, you know in in the rough into the long grass as something to be dealt with sooner. Because if you think about it, if if we can negotiate now on pay and conditions now why why discuss the digital means now we can maybe discuss that later and i think that might be the mistake because that's that's the thing that's going to creep up on you very quickly and so i suspect that it isn't being taken seriously enough in the sort of immediate contingent negotiations that are going on yeah i agree and that's i think in the end they think it's important but they don't also don't have the focus and knowledge about it to say something that can benefit the worker and only can benefit the the press release to get the better coverage in 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 that but maybe in the end we, uh, and, and part of the boiling frog problem again right leaving it until it's too late leaving yeah. it until too much ground has been given up maybe in the end maybe we should thank uber because in the end what i also uh, always say is before the platforms, nobody cared about delivery workers, domestic workers. So trade unions, they didn't care about them. Most definitely. And, and we, we all knew what the conditions were because in the end, in the off-platform market, especially for delivery and domestic services, we all know the conditions are not taking the standard we want to have as a society. And that's and these, these are standards where we as a society, we can't be proud of that. But maybe now because those platforms, they're centralizing this, this markets combined with lots of capital and visibility, then the problem came on the agenda. So maybe this whole movement also brings out something positive into the visibility of precarious workers where nobody cared about it or nobody, but they weren't on the agenda before. No, I, could, I couldn't agree more because we, we have to recognize that people that come to work for these platforms, however poor the conditions are, if, if they're making rational economic choices, they're coming from something worse, right? Because this, this seems to be an improvement for them. And I think that that is the tragedy, is that a lot of people have worked in smaller workplaces with terrible conditions, that this seems good. I was stood there in an onboarding session with Uber when the facilitators at the session stood up and said, look, Unlike your old job, there's no dispatchers here. There's no, you know, the Danny DeVito figure from Taxi years ago. And that, you know, Louis De Palma, I think, is the character. And that there's nobody like that here. There's nobody shouting at you. There's nobody you have to bribe to get work. The work is decided equally by an algorithm. A big cheer for the algorithm. And I was thinking, wow, these people are, these, these people are coming from such terrible working conditions that they're cheering for an algorithm that won't abuse them but of course you know the new boss just as bad as the old boss in a way the thing though that's different in a way about the platform as distinct from these other old style workplaces is that the try in many ways the platform is is a symptom of distressed broader labor market conditions as much as they are an accelerant and a cause of bad labor market conditions and tries to be normalized bad labor market conditions because the truth is, if, if private hire drivers, 
if food delivery workers had been treated properly, they would have never crossed the work, road to work for a platform like that. Why would they? So in some respects, they're a symptom, like something that grows in your, in your pond, in your garden. You know, you can say, ah, when that particular plant arrives, I know that the conditions in my, in my garden are really bad. This is a kind of self-reflection that many policymakers and labor unions don't have. They look at the ideal fair world versus yeah. the platform world. And we all know the world isn't fair at all. No, no. But the thing that is different, though, about the platforms is their scale. Because the, sm the smaller employment place, if it was organized, we'd have much more bargaining power much more quickly than you can achieve against a huge platform. As Uber describes their business model, the lure of large numbers. You could have solved this problem out by keeping vigilance over poor conditions in the labor market allowed to build up over many years. And now, boom, you've got this huge platform in and now it's very difficult to get collective power at all. And that, that's, that's, the lesson, that's the lesson to be learned. And, that, and that's the thing that's different because if you look at the scale of this, the biggest operator of its kind in Europe was Addison Lee, a London-based private hire operator. They were the biggest, not only in the UK, not only in London, but in Europe of their kind. And at their height, they never had more than five and a half, six thousand vehicles. And now there are a hundred thousand licensed vehicles in London, double what there was 10 years ago. And I, I would say is if, if we believe in free market principles, if there was a market to be served that big, then the capital would have been allocated to it through firms like Addison Lee 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. The truth is there isn't. And the only way that this works is if the working time, the waiting time, the, the economics of the lure of large numbers is people are not getting paid. They're not getting paid for the working time. That's the only way this, this thing can work. That's the only way you can have a vehicle outside this door in two minutes is if there are five people waiting for it. It's not a technology solution. It is a, a labor abuse solution that's been allowed to happen and that's the thing that's different is to be the ability to use technology to be able to so wastefully allocate labor in that way that's different it's interesting to see also how the discussion was framed in the in the beginning on on i think more about utopian scenarios about a perfect markets where no taxi driver needed to wait for more than two minutes and in the end when you present this ideal world to policymakers they'll say oh yeah that's great but in the end we know in practice in, in reality such things will never never happen and also because a lot of participants also presented the work in the beginning as additional income and probably it's no problem to to abuse workers when it's when they're not when they don't depend on the income that they're earning for your platform which is also of course I was really surprised on how frames of the that, that, that platforms, which have really smart marketers and lobbyists, I talked to many of them, were echoed also within the, the public debate and also by politicians. I, I remember there was in 2018 at the next web in, in Amsterdam, there was a Case Coden. Case Coden is a Dutch guy, as you can hear on his name. He's the founder of Booking.com, and he was then also the COO of Uber for a couple of months. He was asked on stage, and maybe then we can also make the bridge to regulation. He was asked, okay, but yeah, you're doing big platforms that are disruptive like Booking and Uber, and don't you worry about regulation? And his literary answer was, in the end, you're doing something new. So the regulation that is being written wasn't written with your service with in mind. Probably you need to deal with some regulation, but if you worry about that, 
that you will never get big, that's your loss. That was his really complete honest answer. But I think it's also when you talk about regulation, that's in the end, we're now also talking about lots of new regulation platforms, but I think and it's also, I think also what's also your court cases can, can prove that we already with an existing regulation also can do already a lot. Absolutely. Well, I mean, let's, you've, you've made some really good points there that I would, I'd like to give some, some, some thought to, if I may. Firstly, let's be really clear where the gig economy came from. In a way, it's a kind of an accident of, of, of history because in 2008, in 2007, the iPhone was launched. In, two, in September, around September 2008, both the Apple App Store was opened and the Google Play opened. So that was the start of you like the app economy. Interest rates then were about 5%. In six months, interest rates were 0.5%. You had the financial crash of uh, the worst crash we've had in, global, in the global financial market since 1929. That launched in Britain, <clears throat> many other countries, an age of austerity. And so you've had this kind of Dickensian, the best of times, the worst of times scenario going on. The best of times for technologists in Silicon Valley Low interest rates meant that all this cash flooded into the VC markets. So all you had to do is get out of the bed in the morning with some wacky idea and the venture capitalists would just throw money at you. Because th their investment strategy, best I can figure out, is throw as much money against the wall and let's see what sticks. And that's, that seems to be the investment strategy in Silicon Valley, at least in that era. And that is the era that got Uber going. A lot of free VC money being thrown at them. But it was also an area of austerity for the rest of us. That's when people, you know, saw tuition fees were introduced for the first time in Britain, which caused, you know, we saw the Occupy movement start around that time. We saw public services being cut. We saw the welfare being reformed and the, and, and the work to welfare situation being changed radically. Universal credit we have in this country. And what happened there is we effectively set up a wage subsidy so if you couldn't earn enough at work, you got topped up through the welfare system in this country. That's an effective wage subsidy to these companies. And as people suffered, suffered under repossession of their homes with subprime mortgages and so on, what did these companies do? They came with subprime car loans to go out to work for Uber to supplement your income. That's when they hired David Plouffet, you remember who was the lobbyist for Barack Obama, and he was the one going around making these arguments that you know, Uber was great for American working families who were stretched by austerity that they could now go out and earn a little extra money in, in flexibly. I would argue people like Travis Kalanick and, you know, that sort of very macho, aggressive attitude that you've just described, where they sort of said, they, what did they call, call it? The principled opposition to regulation? A principled opposition, which is like, you know, we're, ta we're taking the high road against regulation that's been set by democratically elected national and local governments. That was their attitude to regulation, is that we know, we know better and we're going to take a principled stand against it. Yeah, but it's also, also not strange if you look at how sitting in Valencia, okay, just, just give us the power for two years and we'll fix all problems in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think that that really fits within the, the, the belief from, from, Silicon, from Silicon Valley. But, but, but what strikes me is, is the lies that can be told. You know, the misclassification is a lie, isn't it? It is this creating this reality, and, and it is a lie because the courts, at least in this country, in our case, describe these contracts as fictions. 
creating this fiction that you're self-employed. That misclassification is a lie. And the gig economy has run on a lie. And I would argue the society we had at the, at the beginning of this decade, post the financial crash, the rise of populism, the shattering of our, of our respect and belief in institutions, combined with low interest rates, austerity, and big cash going into, into Silicon Valley, and the rise of the mobile tech platform, it was the perfect storm that gave us this type of gig economy. And in the end, when you with uh, with the uh, the the ACU, so the App Drivers and Couriers Union, for people that that haven't heard about it before, uh, still today, in the end you did a court case against Uber and you won. Uh, so what were the the implications of this this verdict to the to the worker who was uh, driving for Uber and other platforms? Well, the implication is that in the end Uber had to recognize that Uber drivers in this country at least are workers under the law and they're entitled to statutory protection of minimum wage, holiday pay, freedom from discrimination and so on. So workers in this country enjoy that. But it's it's no silver bullet in a way because we say Uber hasn't obeyed the law on this because Uber is saying, okay, you're a worker, but only from log on, you know, only from the court said from log on to log off, which includes your waiting time. Uber says, no, 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 only from dispatch to drop-off. So the P... That's uh, a big difference. P2 and P3 time. Yeah, it's about 40% difference. If your waiting time is about 40%. And the more people they put on the platform, then, you know, the bigger that chunk becomes. And so so we still, have, we, still, we still have a battle, yeah? I mean, I would hope that you're getting minimum wage when you've got a fare in the vehicle. It's, it's the time that you're waiting around. And you have to wait longer and longer to get a job because you have to soak up your fixed costs, your vehicle your licensing, your insurance, before you can earn something for yourself. And we did some numbers a few years ago that, that showed that you had to work 30 hours to break even. So, you know, whatever you earned over 30 hours, you kept, got to keep for yourself. And so that, that's why people are working 60, 80, 90 hours a week. So we've had a victory in, in that regard, but, but it's, not, it's, it's not enough. And the other thing that I think is kind of shocking in a way, and I, I think we all should be offended by it, is that, well, two things. One is Uber has decided how to interpret the Supreme Court. There has never been a remedy hearing about this. It's been snuffed out before it got that far. So we've never, we've never got to the finish line with these, these cases. Why not? What happened? Well, I'll come to that. But my second point on this is that you've got a workforce of delivery couriers, Uber Eats, and they have no rights at all. And so a company like Uber gets away with being able to segment their workforce in that way and say, one group of workers are workers and another group of workers are self-employed. Well, on what basis? Why has that been allowed to happen? Why is it that, you know, you get to play the game and referee it as well? That's, that's what they've done. Why is it that we've never got to the finish line with these cases? Well, what tends to happen is the lawyers get involved, they set up big group claims, and then they leverage a negotiation with, with Uber. And in some ways, it's good for the drivers because they get some compensation. But we never get the, the ruling in a judgment to say, this is how working time is supposed to be calculated. We haven't got that. In my case, I refused to settle with Uber. And I did get a judgment. But unfortunately, my judgment applies back to 2017. Uber says they changed their business model from 2017. So I did get paid for all my working time, including waiting time, in the settlement that just got a month ago. 
And I, I also insisted on a public judgment. So my judgment is published. And so it's, it's clear that Uber has conceded that they broke the law in my case and that they did not pay me minimum wage and holiday pay, yeah, even when I asked for it. So I treasure that document, but it's rare. But what happens is that Uber has changed the business model from 2017. And before 2017, you were punished if you didn't accept the work. Uber now says you're not punished if you don't accept the work. But of course, we all, we all kind of know that's not true because the algorithm has taken over where the contract left off. And that's, that's the challenge for us. You see, the big message from the Supreme Court in this country is that if you're going to come along with a contract that's fictitious and creates an alternative reality, the courts are going to strike it out and say, we're going to make the decision on what's going on here based on the evidence, not based on some you know, fancy contract that's been put together by, synthetically by an army of lawyers. And that's what Uber was, was essentially arguing at the Supreme Court, is that, listen... These are commercial contracts. Businesses run on commercial contracts and contract law is very important to business. You may not like our contracts, but you have to respect our right to do this, to enter into these types of contracts. And what the Supreme Court said, and because they were challenging an earlier case from 2010 called Auto Cleanse about a bunch of guys who were valeting cars at a, at a big car auction who were being misclassified and what the the judge in that case said I'm throwing out the contracts I'm going to decide whether these people are workers or not based on the evidence of what really happened not what the lawyers have constructed in the contract so what Uber wanted to do the Supreme Court is to overturn our audit lens and say the commercial contracts must stand these people haven't entered into commercial contracts with us and they and they must stand and what the Supreme Court did was a very, was a very moral judgment. He said, look, the purpose of the employment legislation, the statutory protections, is to give the protection to vulnerable workers. And if you come along with a contract that is constructed mischievously to circumvent that, to avoid the statutory protections, you will not get the protection of contract law, those contracts will be torn up. So instead of overturning the earlier ruling from 2010, what happened is the Supreme Court reinforced it and deepened it, which is fantastic. But that's what the Supreme Court decided in that case. But of course, there's a saying, Mark Twain said, the law is an ass, you know, and by that I mean it carries anything. It's not, it's never going to be enough. You have to organize, you have to resist, you have to fight. And the problem for us in this modern era, if the business models, the, the cycle of innovation in any consumer business model is so fast now. It used to be a lot slower, but technology has made the lifespan of a business model much shorter. And so it's, there's endless opportunity for, for an app-based operator to make some changes on the app, shake up the snow globe, put it down and say, okay, off you go. Another seven years of, of litigation now because I've just changed the business model. There's enough plausible deniability. You're going to have to relitigate this. We'll appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court seven years later. Now, now what? Now I'll just change the business model again. And that's the terrible limitation of the law in these cases is that you can, you, you can endlessly change the business model, which means endless cycles of litigation. And so although I reached the, the finish line in my case, Uber's argued, well, we changed the business model in 2017.
I think that that's the challenge with platformers being that it's also why they call it the private regulator. And what you also saw in California with the AB5 and the Prop 22, that's it's it's really easy to to change the model and then start discussion all over again. One thing I wanted to also point out that has been interesting as a byproduct of what happened in the Supreme Court is that the misclassification of the contract is to declare that the driver is the transport operator, the passenger is the passenger, and an Uber is simply an agent, a booking agent in the cloud. And by doing that, they not only get to misclassify you for employment purposes, but also for tax purposes. Because under our tax rules in Britain, the principal transport operator is responsible for VAT, value-added tax, to 20% in Britain today. And there is a floor of £85,000. So if your net sales or your gross sales stay under that, ceiling then nobody pays VAT and that's what's typically happened is the driver's earnings so less much less than that in terms of gross earnings so no VAT is is paid and when before we started our employment claim against Uber Transport for London published a legal opinion about all of this and said they agreed that the driver was somehow the transport principal The problem was, under transport regulation, it's a criminal offence for a driver to accept a booking. A taxi driver, a hackney driver, is is the only person that's allowed to apply for hire on the streets, accept a booking directly. Private hire drivers working for Uber cannot accept their own bookings. They must accept a booking from the licensed operator and that it has to be dispatched to them. So the, the legal accommodation made under transport regulations was we accept the booking. Uber would say we accept the booking for the purpose of the transport legislation, but we do so on behalf of the driver. And Transport for London went along with this. The embarrassing thing happened is in the Supreme Court ruling, the Lord Leggett, who was writing for the bench, made an observation in obiter, which means in Latin, it means by the way, which, which he's saying, I wasn't asked to decide this, but I'm going to give you the benefit of my opinion anyway. It's not binding since I wasn't asked that it's not binding, but this is my opinion. He said is that, look, these people are workers for the following reasons. And by the way, in obiter, I don't believe this situation is legal in transport regulations. Because how can it be that you can accept the booking but not enter into a contract? Or, or, you know, that, that this, you know, if you, we think what makes up a contract, it's an offer and consideration, acceptance and so on. So, so the driver isn't, you know, the, it, it can't, this cannot be legal that you can say you can accept the booking, but you're not accepting the contract. And so this was immediately embarrassing for Uber. So they went to the high court to get a declaration to say under the transport regulations that the Supreme Court had been wrong about this. And of course, this was all perfectly fine. We went in, intervened in that case, because the defendant in the case was Transport for London, who said they were neutral about it all. And we couldn't trust them because of what they said five years earlier. We won that case. And so, as a result, Uber had to change all their contracts and acknowledge that they are the transport principal operator 
And this had two effects for us, which were very important. Well, one is they became liable for VAT in this country. They last year settled with HMRC for £600 million. They're still in dispute over the correct way to calculate this. Secondly, more importantly, it locked in the driver as a subordinate to the platform. And so Uber can shake up the snow globe, like we were talking about, and they can change the business model. But they, what they can't change is under regulation, the driver's subordinate. And that, that kind of means that the worker status is locked in because you can't operate any other way in, in Britain. So that's been an important byproduct of the Supreme Court ruling. And thank goodness for it, because I think we would have had difficulty holding on to that Supreme Court win because they would just simply innovate the business model out of it. Another interesting court case was also about a robo-firing. Can you tell me more about that? In November 2019, the day before Uber lost their license for a second time in London, they went to Transport for London and offered to introduce real-time ID. We haven't ever been given a proper explanation of what it is, but it incorporates facial recognition using Microsoft Face API, but also a whole bunch of surveillance checks, surveillance around location checking, and so on. And TfL said to them, we've, we've got this from the witness statements from the later appeal to the licensing decision. TfL said to them, well, it's too late, we're going to take your license anyway, but we'd encourage you to proceed with this way, because we knew from the previous regulatory review in 2015, Transport for London was very keen on seeing biometrics being introduced into the market. And so they encouraged Uber to carry on with this. And so when TfL refused the license, Uber has then the option to appeal that decision to the magistrate's court and to keep operating as it did so. And so by the time June 2020 rolled around, we're in the middle of the pandemic. The magistrate's court convened to hear their appeal. And they were able to say, typically the argument is, Your Honour, we were not fit and proper for licensing then. TfL were right not to renew the license. But look at us now. We're fit and proper now. Look at all the great things we've done, including the introduction of this facial recognition, real-time identification, and the InstaDoc insurance doc, real-time insurance checking as well. And the magistrate agreed, well, well, well done, well done, well done. You, you, you are fit and proper indeed now. But during that year, it was absolute carnage in terms of the people who were failing the facial recognition test. And Uber was slinging them off the platform under the new regulations that were immediately being reported to Transport for London. Transport for London were immediately revoking the licenses on public safety grounds. Now, normally, Transport for London, if they're going to revoke your, a driver's license, you can continue to work on, as you appeal that decision to the magistrate's court. And, you know, you have a good shot at, at winning your your argument in the magistrate's court. But the only exception to that is if there's anything around safety, so physical or sexual violence, anything like that, it's an immediate revocation. You can appeal to the magistrate's court, but you're not working while, you're, while that's being appealed. TfL took the same hard line for facial recognition failures. If a facial recognition failure reported Transport for London, we're immediately revoking your license on the spot. So we had a whole bunch of these drivers who we then went to magistrate's court and we defended them. We defended them 
in two ways, successfully in two ways. One, we'd make the subject access request and Uber would fail to give us the data to substantiate the claims they made about facial recognition failure or real-time checking failure. Or they would give us the data and that data failed to substantiate what they claimed. So either way, we kind of won because either they wouldn't give us the data and therefore the driver can come to court and say, well, I can't defend myself because they won't give me the data even though I have a right to see it. Or I have the data and you know what? It's not saying what they said it says. And we found out even Microsoft, we wrote to Microsoft and even Microsoft didn't stand behind Uber. Microsoft readily admit that there are problems with that software, that facial recognition. Timna Kebru wrote the famous paper, at M- when she was at MIT, she was working for Microsoft at the time, where she evaluated facial recognition systems for Amazon, IBM and Microsoft. And Microsoft's system is 97% accurate overall, but that falls away to 89% for people of color and 80% for women of color. So if we have 100,000 people working on this platform in London. Yeah, that's and 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 by the way, Transport for London tell us 94% are black, Asian or or other minority ethnic groups BME. Then you're looking at about 10,000 people a year being falsely accused and and facing immediate revocation. So we when we appealed those decisions to the magistrates court, we immediately got the the license back. And we also took them to Amsterdam, made Article 22 claims. Now, you can make of this what you want, but Uber failed to defend those claims. And Uber said that they didn't, they didn't get the claims, they weren't served to them properly, which is complete nonsense because they were, they were served by our lawyers to their lawyers in Amsterdam. And there was even a bailiff was employed in Amsterdam to make sure the service was done properly. I leave it to you to decide whether Uber really didn't, you know, the dog really did eat their homework or whether they didn't want to somehow come on the record in court and explain these automated firings. And we say that there were automated firings of workers. So those six workers were reinstated and they were given compensation and put back on the platform as they were, they were falsely, falsely accused in the way that they failed these automated systems for, for, for recognition. The really funny bit is that there was a, in the response to the Guardian newspaper, Uber was explaining the process of how a default judgment is entered. So a default judgment happens. If you fail, if, if somebody makes a claim against you and you fail to file a defense, then the claimant can apply for a default judgment. And Uber was saying, <clears throat> well, this default judgment only happened because it, it, uh, it automatically happens when you fail to <laughs> defend a claim. So I think the irony of, of Uber claiming that an automated decision was made by the courts was you know, not lost on us. But we went on to make further, uh, further cases in Amsterdam against Uber and Ola relating to failure to access data, failure to give algorithmic explanation, and also for specific cases of Article 22, unfair automated decision-making related to dismissals. Interesting. I think this explanation, but also the work you're also doing with the Worker Info Exchange, so with your <coughs> colleagues and, and the reports, I will also link to the reports also in the show notes because oh, they're really you. nice to read. And they get off, I think also a nice insight because in the end, I think when when the, the whole, let's say, 2000s, 
2012, 2014, when this this whole platform economy was was growing really fast, I think we all had maybe a bit or a bit lots naive on on many things on technology without forgetting the impact on the human, especially when somebody really needs that money to make a living and has a big problem when he or she isn't able to 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 work. And it's also linked to one of the reports on your website about rating stress, fatigue, and traffic incidents the risk and consequences of work as an app courier. We also mentioned that 78% of the respondents even continue to make deliveries despite being so tired that they felt it was no longer safe to continue working. And 27% reported doing this often or always. So I think the work, uh, what you and your colleagues do, I think is really important to really highlight that it's really the effect of, of, of really nice technology and then it doesn't matter if it's good or bad intention but just with a, the intention of, of 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 making things different has a really effect within the lives of, of human beings and society also because in the end this implication of course goes much further than than taxi and delivery uh, it's about how technology influence uh, the working conditions of people and if they are employed or, or not employed i think that is also going to be be much broader well, I would just emphasize again, what we try to do is, and it's important to me coming from a tech background, is that we live in a society that is very tech determined, and we tend to accept technology without question. And I think that's quite a dangerous thing to do. In its simplest form, I was always taught in my, in my earlier career that what software is, is it's simply a blueprint. It's an architectural blueprint. It's a map of what happens, of the processes that you're living, if you like. And that's all it is. That's all that software is. So it's very important for us to define the processes which define the technology, not have the technology define the processes that determine how we live and work. It's, it's a really important principle to not accept tech determinism it's just completely wrong to do that. It's the wrong way to think about technology. And But yet, you know, at every turn, that's what happens. Policymakers, everybody bows down to it. And it's very, it's a very dangerous thing to do. I mean, on the thing with food delivery couriers, what, what I see over the last couple of years is a marked deterioration. It, it, it used to be around a comparable job between taxi, private hire and food delivery couriers. Not anymore. This, this, the working conditions have really deteriorated. And perhaps so, maybe it's a cause, it's an outcome of, which I feel in a way responsible for, because, yeah, private hire drivers, our struggle's far from, from over, but, but, but at least there is some protection and there's none at all for food delivery couriers. And what's happened, at least in this country, is in determining whether you're an employee or not, you know, we talked a lot about the contract and how that doesn't determine. There are certain tests that the courts will look at, and one of which is one of personal service. So, am I required to come to work personally to do this job, or can I send you or somebody else to come and do it for me? That's substitution, so-called substitution clauses in contracts. And so if I'm able to send somebody else to go and do the job instead of me, that points towards it being... I'm a service provider, not an employee. I'm, I'm running a business and I provide, you know, transport services, delivery services. And I have a range of people who I can rely on to do that on my behalf. And so this substitution right 
is has been recognized to be an employment status killer. It's not possible because of the licensing regime to do that for a taxi and private hire. You can't. You, you're licensed uniquely by Transport for London or the City of Amsterdam or whoever. And you just simply can't give your badge to somebody else to go and do that work for you. You just can't do it. But food delivery, sure, pass it around. But does that make any business sense? Of course not. If it's a one-to-many platform, why would I have you know, 10 guys working for me who and I in turn have an account with Deliveroo, Just Eat or Uber Eats? It doesn't make any sense you know, from a business perspective. Mm-hmm. But they allow these substitution clauses simply so they can go to court and demonstrate that this, because substitution is possible, there's no employment relationship. Yeah, but now in Netherlands, with the Deliveroo cases, they, they denied that. So, yeah. so that's, that's also a, a, a big change, I think. Well, what's happened in this country is that it has made the situation far more precarious because now people are renting out accounts and, and we now have a very serious modern slavery risk. Mm. And perhaps you want to link to this or not, but there's a free podcast in the Sunday Times did an investigation here a couple of months ago where they investigated some undocumented workers who had, you know, one one was renting an account. He was ripped off by the person who rented the account because he paid £300 to rent the account. And then that account holder wouldn't hand him over the wages mm-hmm. for the work that they had done. He was homeless, living rough, trying to deliver food and rent accounts. And it's 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 horrific. And I believe it's a it's a problem in Spain also and in southern Europe where where this practice has grown. And so we have a risk of modern slavery. And so the report that we did with Just Eat, Just Eat identified to us in a subject access request where one worker was dismissed because the bank account they were using was the same bank account that Just Eat was paying 49 other workers into. So what, what is going on here? One bank account controlled by one person is having the wages of 49 people paid into it. And in this country, that's considered an, a, a, you know, by the regulator as one of the red flags that they look for in terms of modern slavery. Because if you can't control your wages, you know, the question is, well, who is? And so that's, that's where we're at now with food delivery is that we now have a very serious risk of modern slavery because the substitution clauses have been abused so badly uh, that more and more, that even more vulnerable people are being brought into the platform by unscrupulous account holders. Yeah. And in the end, when you win a court case and the riders get compensated, they, don't, they will never get any money because they are not the main account holder. That's the yeah. The, the, it also the makes, makes access to data more difficult as well because who's the data subject? Where we are with the access cases against Uber, so we have two banks of cases, one, one to do with access and algorithmic transparency and the other to do with robo-firing, automated dismissals. And we had a ruling in 2021 on that case, which we appealed to the Court of Appeal in, in Amsterdam in 2022. And in April this year, we got a, a ruling from the Court of Appeal in Amsterdam, which is fantastic. And the, the even better news is that the, the time limit for appeal has expired and Uber is not appealing it. But in that ruling, when it comes to robo-firing, the, the court upheld that the three of these drivers, including two from Britain, one from Portugal, were indeed robo-fired. And in terms of Uber's defense, that these dismissals had been subject to human review at their center in Poland, the court dismissed that human review as being nothing more than a symbolic act. 
So it's really given some definition around what's acceptable, what's an acceptable level of of human intervention. This is a huge problem for workers as they try to appeal because these, these platforms not only want to automate the outbound relationship with their workforce by messaging and chat bots and and NLP technology, but they actually they're hollowed out companies inside as well. And the truth is, once you start asking questions, you can't find anybody inside who knows what's happened. You know, in one of those robo-firing cases that was went to the Crown Court here in Britain, the judge dismissed the head of regulation from Uber as an unsatisfactory witness because he couldn't answer the basic questions about how their systems were working. And she adjourned the case until somebody from Uber could be found that could explain it. And in the end, the only person available was somebody who had to appear from Silicon Valley via video. So there was nobody in Europe, apparently, that could come to court in person and explain what was really going on, why these, why these workers were being fired in this way. So that was a really great ruling. On the other side, in terms of access to data, what was really important, because one of the new technologies that's been introduced is so-called dynamic pricing. And this dynamic pricing, so, you know, we've had a form of dynamic pricing, which is, you know, the kind of surge, you know, the crude surge that comes on. But this dynamic pricing is a different thing because it's it's all the time variable pricing based on real-time complex event processing, understanding what's happening in the market and so on, but inevitably profiling, profiling of workers and profiling of consumers. As much as these platforms deny it, there's no other way that this can work in the long run, if not in the short run. And I would say, oh, while they denied personal data is being used, I think if you scratch around closely enough, you'll see at least there's an inference of personal data or, pers- or inferred profiles of people that are being used to drive these profiles in dynamic pricing. And the court has ruled that that dynamic pricing algorithm must be exposed now to workers. This is a, a huge win for, for all workers if we can get the necessary transparency around this. And two data points on this. In the most recent earnings call that Dara Khosrowshahi, the CEO of Uber, made to his investors just a couple of weeks ago, he admitted in the call that the workers have inadequate transparency to this, to how these prices are set. And this is a... He's he's effectively admitted to a GDPR violation because of course you're entitled to have that transparency as a matter of law, not as a matter of, you know, when we get around to it, Uber. But that's the CEO admitted that. The second data point on this on this issue is a paper that which you might want to share the link to, that it was a Harvard business case paper last year published on the societal harms of dynamic pricing. Because as well as the issues that you and I have discussed, The issue here is tacit collusion. If you have competing algorithms that are setting prices dynamically in real time in the market, the the risk is is that they're going to somehow tacitly negotiate between these, you know, by inference, these algorithms are going to fix a price above above equilibrium. Because that's that would be, you know, how a machine learning artificial intelligence driven algorithm would resolve the problem. Unfortunately, that amounts to market collusion. So that's the first risk. But the second risk is you think about a two-sided market 
What's a harm to consumer is an even deeper harm to workers because the two sides of the market is that it isn't just the price that's been fixed, it's the labor wages that are being fixed as well for a common labor force. This is a really dangerous piece of technology, the way it's being used. And Harvard Business School, not exactly a hotbed of socialism, but that paper demands immediate regulation of dynamic pricing systems. So <laughs> I, what I would say is where we are with the gig economy, you know, we've, we've had some fights in a way that have been based around contracts but those are yesterday's fights. Today's fight, tomorrow's fight, is around real-time machine learning algorithms that are immediate. And we need to have greater regulation, control, understanding of them. Because we fought for seven years over a static contract. We don't have seven years to fight against real-time algorithms that can be potentially very harmful to workers and to society. And we need to get on top of that pretty pretty damn quickly and even the platform workers directive the eu platform workers directive doesn't nearly come close on this issue so we have we have our work cut out the battle has barely just begun martin far from ended it's barely started thank you so james thank you for the nice conversation so my last question first what i had written down on my laptop was okay so what keeps you going? But I think <laughs> there's enough going on that will keep you going for a long time. But I really want to thank you for this conversation also for the work you're doing. I think it's really important for the, the people that you re represent, but also for, for the broader labor markets and the transformation we're now making to uh, where technology has a bigger role in, in all forms of labor markets. And I hope it also makes many people less naive and a bit more critical uh, making decisions on the, the nice stories we always hear from technology. And that it also can help with forming new regulation. It's a pity that the UK isn't part of the EU anymore, but I hope that you get really much inspiration also from the EU regulation that is now coming up. So thank you very much. And uh, I wish you all the best with your activities. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. We're fellow travelers in that, you know, we all have to work together as a, as a team in this movement um, to open up many fronts towards greater transparency for workers who, who are at base. So thank you for the work that you're doing. The interview with James shows how important it is for all stakeholders in a discussion to have access to the same data. The impact of James and his colleagues' work goes far beyond taxi and delivery platform sector and platforms in general. Technology will play an increasingly important role across the labor market in organizing, allocating, controlling and access to work. Calling taxi and delivery platforms to account through lawsuits makes it clear that there is still much to be done before we move from a period of naive tech optimism to tech realism, to protect workers' rights. New regulation is badly needed, but James' cases also show that a lot can be done accommodated by existing regulation. In doing so, it becomes clear that enforcement, surely really a heavily overlooked topic when it comes to regulation, needs to be taken much more seriously. Initiatives like James are badly needed, but at the same time I worry whether regulation and especially enforcement can keep up with the developments and strategy of technology companies. A first step is by not being blinded off by the utopian long-term stories of the visionaries in tech, 
and focusing more than ever on what is actually happening right now. Tech and AI are not magic, but human work. Asking more questions, being more curious, not adopting the vocabulary of the tech companies and, above all, asking lots of questions. Clearly, the time of naivety may give way to that of reality. Because the impact of technology and platforms is not only in the cloud, but also on the streets. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Also check our weekly newsletter and online webinars on the global gig economy. You will find the links in the show notes.